Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Scoliosis Dialogues, a podcast for the SRS. I'm excited to introduce our podcast guest today, Dr. Alvin Crawford, someone who really needs no introduction because he has done pretty much everything you can do within the SRS. And while this episode will focus a lot on his experience as one of the first black pediatric spine deformity surgeons in the country, we don't want to overlook all of the things he's actually done for the SRS as a society. So in introducing him, I just wanted to mention a couple of these things. As I said, in 2001, Dr. Alvin Crawford became the first black president of the Scoliosis Research Society. But more importantly, during his tenure, he actually was instrumental in allowing the SRS to gain independence from a management standpoint from the AAOS and moved our whole organization over to a new management company. And as you can see, our society has grown leaps and bounds since then. In 2003, he won the Best Paper Award named after Dr. Hibbs for his study titled Endoscopic Mechanical Spinal Hemipiphysiodesis Modified Spine Growth. In 2009, he was one of the senior traveling fellows for the SRS Traveling Fellowship. In 2012, he received the great honor of being asked to be the Paul Harrington lecturer at the SRS meeting. In 2012, he won the Louis A. Goldstein Award for his project titled Prediction of Scoliosis Surgery in Neurofibromatosis Type 1 Patients. And then finally, in 2014, Dr. Crawford received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the SRS. I am so excited for this episode. My name is Jason Brooks. Uh, I'm uh, the chair of the SRS podcast committee, and uh, we are doing a special episode on one of our great members, which will be introduced soon. But I'm extremely excited also to have two co-hosts here, uh, Dr. Alvin Jones uh, and Dr. Terry Ishmael, who are going to introduce themselves right now. Yes. Hi, I am Dr. Jones. I'm a uh, pediatric orthopedic surgeon working at Dayton Children's Hospital in Dayton, Ohio. Hi, I'm uh, Terry Ishmael. I'm also a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. I'm actually currently working at Rutgers in New Brunswick, but I'm moving to the Philadelphia Shriners in the next few months. Today we have with us uh, the illustrious professor emeritus Alvin Crawford. It's been privileged to get to know him. I, I trained at their fellowship at University of Cincinnati Children's with him. And so, Dr. Crawford, we would like to go into a little bit about your, your career and your path over the last several years. And so if, if anybody were to Google you, uh, they may find out that you were the first Black medical student at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. Can you please uh, let the audience know uh, exactly how that came to be? Well, good. That's a, that's a great question to start with, because how I got here was a little bit of a different road. I was a music major in college, and uh, I was getting towards the end of it, and I was talking to my brother. He was talking about how well I was playing, but said that uh, I'd probably have no problems whatsoever in getting a job after I was done. And uh, I asked him, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, we've got three of the band directors uh, in Memphis that are retiring, and you'll be right there. And I said, oh, my goodness. Of all the things, I loved my band director almost as much as I loved my father and sometimes more. The one thing I didn't want it to be in life was a high school band director. Boy, that is heavy. <laughs> that is really heavy. So we talked a bit 
and said, well, you know, what do you want? I said, well, you know, I'd like to be a studio musician, but I didn't go to a conservatory. I, that would be a little tough for me. And we were just hanging out. So he said, well, you like challenges. Uh, have you ever thought of medicine? I said, um, no, actually, I've never thought of medicine. He said, well, that's a challenge. Why don't you think about it? And I said, fine. And so I did. As a result of that, I looked into medicine and found out that medicine did not need a biological degree. You needed to pass the MedCat and get all the prerequisites. So I set about going ahead to do that. So I was fortunate at Tennessee State. I went to Tennessee State University and um, took the MedCat and was successfully uh, admitted to medical school, but to Meharry Medical School. Uh, which was a historically black medical college in Nashville. During that time, uh, my mother was a nurse at uh, the E.H. Crump uh, Hospital in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, which was, quote, unquote, one of the colored hospitals. And the chief of surgery was the president of the NAACP. He said, well, Irma, that's my mother's name. They're resisting uh, admitting us to the University of Tennessee. Would you mind if we use your, your son's credentials? She said, well, you know, he's good. He said, Meharry, we mortgaged the house and I think he'll be okay, whatever you do. <laughs> so as a result of that, they submitted it and uh, the university came back that, well, we'd, we found a qualified African, but he's in medical school already, so it's a non-issue. And that generated some conversation because we found out it was me and we thought about the fact that it's a state medical school. Meharry is a private medical school and it's very expensive. And uh, then that would be a good thing to do. But my mother said, it may not be easy, but you really never liked it easy. So maybe this will take care of you. And so we, we decided that maybe this will do it. So I, um, I was at Meharry for one quarter. And then I went for an interview at the University of Tennessee. And um, it may be, it, it's probably one of the more memorable situations I've ever been. The first thing is that the dean of the College of Medicine said, son, if my daddy knew I was interviewing you, he would turn over in his grave. And I said to myself, well, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> so we, we got through that. He said that we don't consider Meharry an accredited uh, medical school, let alone the, the uh, Tennessee State University said, if you decide to come here, you'll have to start all over again. And I had to think about that, but it was only one quarter, so that wasn't uh, much. And then I said, uh, okay, uh, and that was the end of that interview. I interviewed the provost. The provost said, son, you're doing well. You're number two in your class. If you come here, you're going to flunk out, and that's going to be a, a bad situation. You might want to really think about it uh, before you make the decision to come here. You know, but I was sort of young and I probably had more bravado than brain at that time. And I said, yes, the provost, would I be able to take the same exam as the other students? And he looked at me and he said, yes. I said, won't be a problem. It'll be okay. And so we walked away from that. But I think more important was the times. And that is that uh, the dean at the College of Medicine, Meharry, uh, requested I visit him and, and doing so. He said, Alvin, you've got to really think about what your decision will be. You're number two in the class. If you go there and flunk, we will lose what I consider to be a coming good doctor. Uh, and that'll be one thing. There'll be one loss. But I'm more concerned is that Meharry now is a pivot in that in the southern states, 
the Jim Crow laws will not allow a black medical student to train at their institution. If this happens and you're successful, we're not sure as to whether or not there might be a domino effect. And the domino effect that then other Southern schools would take them. And we now have the cream of the crop of African-Americans in the Southern schools if they're going to go into medical school. And then it could be the domino effect could indirectly affect uh, Meharry in that Meharry is a private medical school. But the Jim Crow laws are separate but equal. There's a Southern Regional Council that supports funding of Black students if they go to Meharry because of the separate but equal laws. And then that could be considerable income to Meharry. And boy, I had to think, I said, oh. shit, I'm, I'm, I'm 19 years old. <laughs> Just, I have a clue. This is, this is a pretty heavy trip. And so I looked and I said, well, I think it'll be okay. And, uh, and from that, decided to go. So as a result of that, I left Bahari. But Tennessee was on a different system. They had started during World War II to get doctors into the field quicker. They had a quarter system. Every quarter was taught on the quarter, and you could literally go for 12 quarters, take one quarter off for your state boards, and be a doctor, where it was four years one way or the other at Meharry. And um, I undertook to do that and uh, went to the University of uh, Tennessee. Needless to say, it wasn't easy, but it, it, it had several merits. One, is that I didn't have study partners. Uh, I studied one, one fellow, but then it was, he was concerned about it in that it was against the law in the state of Tennessee. This is 1960, cohabitating conversation. You could be arrested literally just sim- simply talking to each other, let alone studying. So uh, in terms of study partners and all that, that became a non-issue in terms of the class and uh, no class parties, no class picnics. No, it was, that's the way it was. And it was easy. It was easy for me. I didn't have to put up with a lot of possible social political issues. It was good for them. They didn't have to put up with me. So it was, uh, I sort of, uh, not necessarily a loner, but I can't say that it was uh, overwhelmingly uh, comfortable, but I'd made probably one of the, what I consider to be maybe the worst mistakes in my life, but I had to take advantage of it and do the best I could. And so from that point on, it was studying for medicine and playing a few gigs on the weekend. I continue with music, (laughs) but it it tended to work out. I was able to uh, graduate and very high in the class. And in addition to that, one of the things that came up in about the, uh, the Dean's list and so forth, having done well, not beyond. It was an interesting thing after anatomy. Uh, I was concerned about that because I'd known I'd scored pretty well. And he said, well, you know, it wouldn't be fair for you to be appointed to the dean's list at this time and that you've had some of that material and it wouldn't be fair to your fellow classmates. <laughs> I'd had one quarter, but anyway, it, it worked out. And uh, things the University of Tennessee has been subsequently nice to me um, in many ways. One, I've been honored there with an outstanding alumnus. Uh, they have a house now, a virtual house, a study house that uh, they've named in my, uh, in my honor, and several other things. So there's been some payback, and uh, I'm proud to say that I'm a graduate of the University of Tennessee College of Medicine. Oh, Dr. Crawford, I mean, that's amazing. 
moving forward, um, you know, I have another question. Um, even today, orthopedic surgery is known to be one of the least diverse specialties in all of medicine. I'm sure it was even worse when you were applying. Tell us how you got in and who supported your pursuit of orthopedics. Well, let me tell you what, I was poorer than poor. You know, there's, there's poor. And then, and then that was my family. And that took it to another level. So I joined the Navy. It was at that time called the Navy Senior Medical Student Program. It's now called the HPSP, which is the Health Professional Scholarship Student Program. But I joined that and um, some interesting things happened. And joining that, they would, uh, they would pay. At that time, it was only my senior year and then vacations when I could do reserve duty that they would pay for. But in selecting me, they selected the Boston Naval Hospital. And I wondered about that. That wasn't one of the ones that I had placed on my list. But they felt that I would be, having been in a totally segregated atmosphere, that would get me as close to integration uh, it could, as it could be. And uh, they were concerned about that. Uh, I selected the Boston Naval Hospital. Uh, getting into orthopedics was a little bit different. You might be aware that orthopedics has just recently been decided to be the most white uh, surgical residency and service of all of them at this point. So apparently less blacks are taken into orthopedics than any other the surgical specialties. Uh, I had a very fine uh, internship. We didn't have to select during my time. At my time, you finish your internship and you sort of did something else. And then you needed, for surgical specialty, you needed two years of general surgery and then three years in your specialty. When I finished my internship, I knew exactly where I'd be and what I would be doing. Uh, and that was, this was 1964, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution declared Vietnam as a place to be. So I knew that I would be somewhere either on the tropical shores or in, in the bay and ended up uh, at what's called Dixie Station, but on a Navy ship. So uh, that was it. But I was on what's called a repair ship. There, with a repair ship, you're a floating foundry. And we saw lots and lots of injuries, punch press injuries, um, injuries that had to do with mechanics and so forth. And I sort of got a feel for orthopedics. I said that that might be the thing I'd want to do. So I was attracted to it. Uh, I was in Southeast Asia. We went to Hong Kong. And uh, during that time, the Asians were able to, to uh, literally reprint any book for you at any cost. And as a result, I bought Campbell's while I was out at sea and read Campbell's uh, Operative Orthopedics during the time I was on ship and uh, decided that that's what I wanted to be. I came back, was stationed at Long Beach in California. I visited the orthopedic hospital. There's a fellow, J. Vernon Luck, who was the chief there, and we got to know each other, and he accepted me. Uh, but I, I had to do my payback time first, so I couldn't start for three years. I ran into the old chief at uh, Chelsea Naval at what's called the SOMOS, the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons, who said that they'd had a fellow who dropped out, and they'd love to have me to return. And it didn't take very long for me to say yes. And so I then went directly uh, to Boston. But I can tell you what, extricating a uh, young family where you'd been away for a year to from Los Angeles to go back to Boston, where they remembered the Boston weather, wasn't the easiest thing I've ever done. But anyway, that's how I did it. And I went back as an orthopedist. It was, it, it was a thing to do. 
and that's uh, that's how I got there. That's awesome, uh, Dr. Crawford. Uh, you know, I'm at uh, the Scotts Wright Hospital now, uh, where you know Tony Herring is, and uh, and your friendship with Tony Herring uh, is well known. Uh, and I know you've told me this story kind of at various SRS meetings, but I would love for the SRS membership to just know kind of how did this relationship start um, and how have you all supported each other throughout your careers? Because I know it has a Boston connection. Well, let me tell you what, getting into the Boston connection was uh, a story in itself. And this is, I was at uh, the the Boston Naval Hospital as an orthopedic resident and unbeknownst to me, uh, my chief had done something. I'd done well on the orthopedic and training exams, and uh, my chief, John Hall, had gone over to visit Arthur, Arthur Pappas, who at that time was the chief at uh, the Children's Hospital. And uh, he said, well, we've got this boy at, over across the river, and he's doing really, really well. His, his, uh, his uh, examinations scores have been sent to you, and we're interested in getting him into the Harvard program. We feel that we'd be good for Harvard and it would definitely be good for the Navy if you were to be willing to do it. And Art Pepper said, well, you know, I've I've read his history. I knew he had been rotating through the Mass General and uh, I I think we we could take him in. And so then John said, but uh, Dr. Pepper said, I do have to tell you something. This boy is black, he's a Negro. And our papers just said, do you think he could be here at 630 in the morning? And uh, <laughs> and uh, Art said, well, I'll have him here. So I went and it wasn't necessarily accepted by the the residents. Uh, the staff was very, very good in general. Said it was doing well there. But Tony Herring and I were on a service together. And uh, Tony's a junior resident and I'm the senior. We've both been been considered to be fairly assertive and uh, not necessarily aggressive, but I think that might be uh, mm-hmm. to consider us to be compulsive would really be an understatement for either of us. <laughs> and as a result of that, I was a chief and we would have, I was what's called a senior, the super senior, and he was a junior to me. And so it had happened that I was countermanding and countersanding some of the orders he was writing on some of the patients. So he he sort of objected to that. So you know it went on and went on. And so one day he invited me into the uh, cash room closet, and we were going to resolve, you know, to solve the the conflicting uh, opinions. We were going to solve it with a little bit of fisticuffs. Now, is, <laughs> is that who's who's six three and, a, and one who's who's just pressing five eleven to six one <laughs> and he is gonna duke it out. But you know, I said, my God, here is a person who's taking me as another person. Whereas I'd done the same thing the others and they just say, Oh, okay, and just blow it off and you know, not gonna deal with it one way or the other. But he it was just it was as though it it made it sort of transparent and sort of raceless that this was like he was upset about it and he didn't care about the social right he wanted to take care of that and i was i was up for it but anyway what, what so, did you call it the cash closet what's that what did it's you call a cash it? room the cash room closet oh yeah no it's big that, was that That's the term for step the in, step outside that was the, the term back, that's the term back then for step outside 
or you got a plane. And no, he wanted to duke it out. And, you know, we look at it now, but let me tell you what, it was that we were just two guys having a problem. It wasn't, oh, wait a minute, he's black. Oh, well, he's white. It was, and it was good. And I can tell you this, if you consider what the social political implications of the other people in the program, he is a, a, a Southwest Texas boy from the farm shooting guns by the time he was nine or 10 and taking care of business. And I'm sitting in Memphis, Orange Mountain, ghetto brother, and, and we, we locked on. And I can say there has probably been not, um, there's not been three weeks to a month that we haven't talked to each other in the last 50 years. Uh, Awesome. It's, it was an unbelievable association and relationship. And um, we've truly been through lots and lots together, including going to meetings, sharing room, just a lot, a lot of things. It, and I, I, I want to end it that, that um, it, it, I think we can both consider each other best of friends at this point. That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you kind of mentioned John Hall. And, and, you know, we've talked a little bit about residency, but I don't know if everybody knows that you did two fellowships. And one of them was at uh, Nemours Hospital, where you got to learn under Dean McEwen. Um, can you talk a little bit about your relationship with John Hall and Dean McEwen and your favorite memories of them and how they supported your budding career? Yes. Can I get into pediatric orthopedics? Sure. The reason I say the reason I say that is that while before John Howard met with Art Pappas, I had been accepted to an O Frank Fellowship. The O Frank Fellowship was that was the leading joint arthroplasty fellowship in the United States, and that would assure me of a life of whatever you get when you can put enough joints in, and that was many, but. Then I rotated on a pediatric service, and to be very honest, I fell in love with children. It was, I, I think the children are so unique. They want to get better. You know what their goal is at all times. You know, when a, when a person has low back pain, you don't know whether they want to chip to get off of work. They don't want to do this. There might be personal relationships. A child has one goal. They don't really care. They, you, this tall black guy, this short white guy. They have one goal, and that is to get back to playing with their friends. If you can achieve that, then you've got them and they've got you. So I fell in love with pediatrics, and that's how I got into pediatric orthopedics, uh, as opposed to, at that time, it was going to be joint arthroplasty. So I had an unbelievable career and that I associated with those two men. And tell me which one you want me to go first with, Alvin. Well, why don't you go in in order of like how your career went? So you started off okay. with Boston Children's sure. with John Hall. Fine. With it. Now, my career with John Hall initially was an altogether different one from what people would assume in reading a history. In that I had finished my senior residency and, and then did a, uh, a fellowship uh, in, in pediatric orthopedics. Uh, and this was January to July. John Hall was at the Hospital for Sick Children in Boston. And he had been interviewed and was coming to Boston. And he came uh, in June. At the time, I was the only fellow there. 
he was in the process of getting started and getting his license and so forth. And so I got to meet him. I got to meet him uh, as a person, not necessarily as my chief. Art Pappas was leaving to go to the University of Massachusetts as the chief there. And just to sit down and talk to John about many things. And I found that he was a very unique individual and that one of the first things he told me is that he asked me, that is, not told me, uh, do you know Charles Epps? Of Charles Epps, I, I don't know him well because I've never been associated with. He said, "Well, he was one of my best friends, and you know, you have to watch that one of my best friends thing." Uh, so I said, "Well, how do you know Charles Epps?" He said, "We belong to the there's a crippled children's service type of thing that people who do pediatrics get together and they meet once or twice uh, a year, and." He said, uh, and Charlie and I have become friends. And I said, okay. And he said, as a result of, we actually change kids in the summer. Uh, his kids will come uh, and spend time with us. And uh, my kids will come and spend, I said, oh my goodness, not to him. But that is a level of friendship. And I didn't know many humans in the United States who had that type of relationship. Charles Epson is an unbelievable, he is literally the godfather of any person who looks like us who is in orthopedics. If you haven't met him personally and talked to him, you have to do that. Because I said, I knew this would have some traction today. I actually call Charles Epps. Charles Epps is 91 years old. He is as clear as a bell. And he talked to me today. I said, I'm going to, he said, oh no, John and I were the closest of friends. And, and it was, it was just an unbelievable conversation. So related to that. So that was my initial association with John Hall. Tony Herring was a resident of him and came out to San Diego, which is where I went when I left that. And we talked, I received a Carlberry traveling fellowship. And I then with that went back to Boston to work with John Hall. Uh, and then that's where I did cases and followed surgeries with him at that time. And then Dean McEwen. So Dean McEwen comes to San Diego. I get to meet him. And uh, he is an unbelievable man, but he's a thinker. And you have, you know, sometimes surgeons don't do well with thinkers. And sometimes thinkers don't do well with surgeons. So anyway, uh, I, I got to meet him. And I told him I was in the Navy. I was committed for life. Would it be possible to do a fellowship with him? And he said, and I said, you know, the financial situation, they take care of all of that, but I'd have to get a good experience. He said, uh, uh, sure. Uh, and at that time, I had a beard. He said, but you'd have to cut that beard off because Dr. Shans, Alfred Shans, was the chief at DuPont. Uh, he doesn't like beards. And I don't know whether you'll like the Afro either, but you'll have to get rid of <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to get rid of the beard. So I cut the beard off, and uh, and so I went out. Did you yeah, keep bro, I just, look, I can only give so much, brother. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Dean was impressed that I had that I'd cut the beard off. But Dean McEwen is an unbelievable man. He is literally a thinker. John Hall can tell you how to operate. Dean McEwen can delineate what to operate on, when to operate, and how to operate. And it was unbelievable. My relationship with him, he was tough. Uh, but but I, I can take tough. But, but 
he did something. He was then uh, in the Scoliosis Research Society. They had a uh, meeting in South Africa. He and I met every Sunday morning, uh, usually at about nine o'clock, and we'd go over the week and the cases and so forth. He came back from a meeting. He said, uh, how are you doing? I said, well, I'm doing fine. He said, how are your projects coming? I said, fine. I do the babies at Wilmington. I used to go to the newborn nursery there and examine the hips through the orderlines and do that. In the CP clinic, I've got that going on. In scoliosis clinic, I've got there all the films. He said, what about your project? I said, well, are you talking about, oh, the club feet. The club feet, I've got them measured. He said, look, uh, how are you doing with your project? And I said, my my project? I thought those were my project. He said, no, how are you doing with neurofibromatosis? And I looked at him and said, neurofibromatosis, you got to be kidding me. I thought, I didn't didn't know that was going to be my project. He said, well, it depends on whether or not you want to be a pediatric orthopedist. And from that, I fell in love with neurofibromatosis. (laughs) Wow. And it it has been an unbelievable ride in that I got involved in it. Uh, He actually set it up uh, that I could do a paper and there is an actor orthopedic of Scandinavica that we worked out that I did on uh, neurofibromatosis in children. And it has been a satisfying career. Uh, some of the most ungodly uh, spines you've ever seen in your entire life was able to get involved in that. But uh, no, that was, that was, Dean was a thinker and uh, he is the one that caused me to fall in love with neurofibromatosis. <laughs> So, Dr. Crawford, uh, tell us about your first job and what was the atmosphere like when you, you were a young attending, just you know, fresh out of training? Well, my first job, I was very fortunate. Uh, again, I was in the Navy. I was committed. And so my first job was uh, at the Naval Hospital of San Diego. The real question should be that, how did that come about? Well, I wanted it. I was told that was the largest facility in the United States, 11 Naval District, the largest Naval District, which meant that if a kid had problems, they could have their the family transferred to, to San Diego. But when I went in, and first of all, I should preface that, that I was in Admiral Zumwalt's Navy. Zumwalt was an unbelievable person. He changed the military, especially the Navy in terms of credibility, in terms of equal opportunity, in terms of uh, just about everything. When I went to San Diego, orthopedic surgery was down the hall, uh, and there was a sign, and one side said active duty, the other side said dependent and uh, retired. There was a fellow, Jerry Katie, who allowed me to literally set up pediatric orthopedics. It had never been a specialty, it had never been a situation, and having that changed my life and given the responsibility to take care of very difficult cases and populations, uh, which I did in San Diego for four years was just a tremendous uh, opportunity. Uh, Set up the program and then at that time there was a thing called the Berry Plan and Tony Herring was on the Berry Plan. We were able to work it that he would come out and we worked together and uh, developed uh, a very good program. The residents uh, felt that I, I was a little bit tough, but they could get relief if they could go and commensurate with Tony. So it, it, it worked out. <laughs> it, it worked out very well. A little bit along that line, after you did the second fellowship, you ended up in Detroit, correct? Working there. Yes. So, so tell me a little bit about that job and then what sparked the move from there to Cincinnati? 
Well, you know, the move to there was was equally as important. I finished, I'd gotten the Outstanding Residence Award in Boston. I'd finished very high. I'd done everything you're supposed to do and uh, was at the point of getting out of the Navy. And uh, not one institution in the continental United States would offer me a job, even though I may have been begging on occasion. Except there was one, there was one job I was offered. Gene Black was at Stanford and he offered me a job, but I had made a decision that I was only going to get out of the Navy, which was a good situation I was in and take a job if I could make at least twice what the Navy was paying me. And I found out the Gene Black put the package together for me to go to Stanford, but I found out so at that time, to be a staff man at Stanford, you almost had to be a trust fund baby. I mean, they didn't pay. I think it might still be true today. I'm sorry. Yes. I, didn't, I didn't know something about it, though. Had I known that, my life may have been different in that you, they, if, if, if you fall into that situation, they have a community in Palo Alto, not only that the best schools that your children could ever go to, an unbelievable job. So the perks... Would have been, but at that time, I, you know, being poor as long as I'd been poor, I was ready to make a little bit of money. Dennis Lyon had been a, uh, a, a staff man through the Berry Plan at the Boston Naval Hospital. I'd gotten to be friends uh, with him. He had uh, done his residency at Johns Hopkins. Very, very bright guy. He was into neurological uh, uh, orthopedics. Uh, he didn't really like surgery, a lot of heavy surgery. And uh, he knew how I felt about uh, heavy surgery. And as a result, uh, he said, you know, would you like to come here? And I said, and we talked about it. And I told him the salary issue. He said, oh, no, it's not a problem. And so we went to, to Henry Ford. It was not an easy move for the family. My daughter read in the paper at that time, this was 75, the highest murder rate, I think, in the country was in Detroit. And so... <laughs> Uh, here I've taken them from from Los Angeles back to Boston. Now I took them back to San Diego, and now I'm taking them from San Diego to Detroit. And boy, that was that was uh, there were a lot of, uh, of difficult days there. But anyway, uh, it was an unbelievable job. Henry Ford is a great hospital. If Henry Ford Hospital were in any place other than Detroit, it would rank with the uh, Mayo Clinic. I mean, a patient can come in and see a full array of specialists and be out and be on the plane at six o'clock with all the the transcripts and everything type with them. It it was really, really good. They told me when I went there that uh, Henry Ford Jr. had just given uh, like, oh, it may have been uh, $300 million or something like that, uh, number two, because to, that was to honor his father. And uh, that any project that you decided to investigate had to have clinical returns within seven years. And I'm saying, oh, my God. And so it was good. I liked that. I became enamored with pediatric orthopedics in an institution. And I felt that to to fulfill my life uh, goals, I had to have a pediatric orthopedic, I mean, a pediatric hospital. And uh, at that time, uh, no one, again, was willing. But then Ed Miller, a fellow in, in uh, Cincinnati, he searched me out and gave me a call and uh, we talked. And Ed was an interesting guy. He wanted uh, to have a good pediatric orthopedic shop. He had a great orthopedic uh, general and adult. 
And he had uh, recruited another fellow, Frank Noyes, who was in the Air Force in, uh, at uh, Dayton, right, Pat? And so he was going to take over the Midwest with an academic uh, rigidly pursuing uh, uh, orthopedic division. And he talked me into uh, coming to Cincinnati Children's. And uh, I did it. And uh, at that time, the family didn't think much of it again either that Cincinnati had been considered one of the most racially segregated towns in the uh, in the United States. And uh, the kids, you know, I have two bright kids and they read all this. And <laughs> I think they still had somewhere in Southern California on their mind. So whatever decisions I made, it had to be counterbalanced with that. But I went to Cincinnati, we got settled and everything and operated a kid. And in Detroit, I'd been doing a lot of front and backs. That was the thing there. There was the front and the back whereas for spine surgery. It's aggressive and they'd have them intubated for about six or eight days and things. That's the way it went. Well, I went and I did this kid on a Thursday and I came in uh, Sunday morning. I'd come from church and I said, I need to go by and see this kid because I know he's probably not doing well. And he was, it was a young kid, and I had to do an anterior release and then a posterior fusion. At that time, it may have been a seven and nine hour case. But I went in and I, I looked at the chart and I saw the kid, and I was looking and looking at the chart. And the kid said, Hi, Dr. Crawford. And I said, Oh my God, this kid is about nine. I've done anterior posteriors three, three days later. He did, he's not intubated and he is good. He knows who he is. This, I'm hooked. And that from that point on, I looked, I said, I have to try to be half as good as the physicians at Cincinnati Children's Hospital to even hold my place. Uh, and from that point, my goal was to make orthopedics as solid as pediatrics. And I think everyone in the world knows how strong pediatrics is at Cincinnati Children's Hospital. So that was my goal. It was lined out for me. And I never thought about it after that. Um, as to making that decision. So I, I went to Detroit because of the opportunity to work with a friend and we were hand in glove. He would attract very difficult cases and pass them to me. So I had my own internal referral <laughs> and uh, I would take good care of patients that he didn't necessarily feel free and I didn't feel free for some of those. And so that worked out very well. So I really, I, I had probably more problems leaving him because the money was good, the patients was good, the hospital was good, but it wasn't a pediatric shop. I wanted to be chief of a pediatric shop. I looked at uh, Detroit uh, uh, Children's and some other things, but Cincinnati was the one, and Ed Miller wanted me. It's one thing to want to go to a place. It's another for someone there to want you to come to that place, and so I went with that, and as a result of that, uh, it was good. And so that's how I got to Cincinnati. Uh, we didn't have, there was no such thing as a pediatric orthopedic service per se. Aaron Perlman was uh, a town guy with a Freiburg group. He welcomed me. He was very supportive. We set up a service. Um, that notwithstanding, it took me seven years to get somebody to come to work for me. That was, that was a little bit of an issue. But uh, a fellow by the name is Dennis Roy, who'd been a, uh, an intern in the Navy when I did reserve duty and operated with him. And it spent some time with Dean McEwen. We got together and from that point said that we're going to, one, take the toughest cases there are and we're going to make it look good. And uh, he bought into it. And that's where it started. Of course, it evolved from there to what it is today.
so along those same lines, you know, like you, uh, you told us why you went to Cincinnati and why you wanted to build that. But I think a, a question that a lot of us surgeons have to answer, especially kind of, you know, younger in our career. And I know me and Terry just kind of had to answer that same question. And Alvin too, uh, is, is when, when, or do we move? When do we make that move? Uh, do, when do we stay at the job that we think is awesome? And when do we decide to maybe go for potentially that next opportunity? It looks like you, know, you stayed in Cincinnati and made that your place. But I'm sure after a while, people came calling. What made you stay? Well, here's the thing about it. Um, I said something earlier that you've got to appreciate. People recruit people now to fill a space. But in my time as an African-American, to have a chief who wanted me to come, it wasn't filling a space. At least I felt that it was personal. That attracted me to go there. That's number one. Now, having said that, as things got busy, we started writing. uh, Anyone who's ever worked for me knows that that's one of the parts of the job. It's not just your good surgery uh, or your good uh, patient care, uh, because you could be the greatest person in the world and your patients will all love you and they'll say nice things. But if you're right about them and you're successful with it, then the world will know who you are. And uh, that's a proverb that I've had, really. And um, life comes around full circle. I had done very well, possibly into my fourth year at Cincinnati Children's. John Hall decided to leave Boston Children's. And uh, they were uh, researching people around the country. Several of us were invited. I was invited to, to come to Boston Children's to be to be John Hall's replacement. And at that time, you know, like any place can have social political issues, but John had sort of like a six month waiting list. Uh, everything was true for that. I'd been in Boston before I knew the Boston politics. And so I had to make a decision. Um, and that was one, am I happy? And the answer was yes. And did I need the Boston tag? And I said, well, I've actually had the Boston tag. And I thought about it and sort of looked in the mirror and I discussed it with my wife that if I went to Boston and it didn't go well, uh, then they'd made, they'd made a mistake in, in getting me. If it did go well, then it went well because John was still around and helping me through it. So it was just not one of those things where as my situation in Cincinnati was that I had taken it, I had make it, made it. And it was left up to me to make it better and to compete internationally. And that was my my responsibility. And I said, you know, I think I've got something that I don't really want to give up. And I want to make it work. Uh, Cincinnati is Cincinnati. The town's not going to change. But uh, I think we can make orthopedics good. And uh, from that point on, I I never stopped to think about it. I interviewed two jobs. One was Boston. The other one was uh, the University of Virginia. Uh, And uh, after coming back, I said, you know, I put my foot in it here in in Cincinnati. Uh, I like it. I want to make it even better than it is. And that was my goal. And that's why I decided to stay. So for young guys, it's difficult. I would say, I do things in three-year intervals, at least, you know, it, I start off and it is really, really, really good, but it is really, really good, but however, and then it is really good, but however, if 
And I say, if there are three obstacles, then it's not as good as you may have thought it was. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I use. That is my measure. I, that's what I do. And I did that. And I said, you know, when I, dis- when I signed the contract, I said, look, this is great. But in six months, I have to look to see if it's great. And then at a year, it has to be even better than greater. And that's what I do. And you can get a feel. No one can make a decision in a year. If you can make the decision to leave a a place in a year, it meant that you didn't make a quality decision to go there. And so, um, and and that's the way I played it. I played it that uh, it's good. Uh, Nothing is perfect. (laughs) So needless to say, there are obstacles in the way. Um, My mother had an unbelievable influence on me in terms of the way I think about things. And it, it, it shows in my career for the time that I was going through what you guys are going through is that my mother felt that, you know, there were obstacles in life, uh, but she didn't want me to ever be, or any of her children, there were three of us, to be a, a victim. If you get into a situation, you have to deal with it. And uh, complaining and doing all this, you, you have to, if you thought enough to get into it, then you should be able to make it better. So I've had that philosophy. So I don't show a lot of outward complaints of, of issues you make it better. You can work it. Uh, and a, a part of Dean McEwen, Dean McEwen said, you got to think about it. You think about it before you go into it and then make it work. And uh, there were obstacles that you, you, if you look at the times, you can't say it was an easier piece of cake for an African-American male who uh, has a little bit of a positive personality. Uh, that Not the adjective. I see. Okay. A that- <laughs> positive personality. <laughs> You know, as I like to tell my fellows now, they'd say, well, you know, in the old days, I was just like anybody else, sort of meek, mild-mannered, and submissive. (laughs) 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 But anyway, I was able to work out things. And then, oh, the last thing is that find a place that you're comfortable. Let the people who help you know how much you appreciate them. You can never get by there. You, look. It's one thing to be able to cut every day at 7.30. It's another to be able to cut two or three times a month, maybe at 7.30. But you've got to be starting at the environmental protection people, the people who clean the floors, the people who do this. It doesn't hurt you if you're trying to get a case going to go ahead and maybe lift something or take something out or whatever. Look, you are paying down on the rewards that are unbelievable. Uh, my staff knew that nobody could beat up on them but me, and that uh, and they knew that I had their back by default of anything just to come talk to me. And as a result, I had unbelievable participation. I mean, my nurses, my and uh, I think I think the people on this call will know I'm not the easiest person to come with it every time, especially if it's not working well. But no. Uh, Remember that as a young doctor, be nice to the people who are helping you and they will continue to help you. Otherwise, things can happen and you have no idea as to why they're happening. I can tell you why. (laughs) So, Dr. Crawford, in 2001, you became the first black president of the Scoliosis Research Society, which has been an amazing achievement. Reflecting on that achievement, what did it mean for you and what advice would you give to surgeons of color interested in reaching similar achievements? 
Well, one, it's relationships. I worked very, very hard. I've worked hard throughout my career in terms of the industry of getting cases done, in terms of uh, documentation and writing and so forth. And we had an international crew. I've done better in international situations uh, where the social political edge was not the same. And uh, I've noticed that. We did some things in, with the Scoliosis Research Society. At that time, the Scoliosis Research Society was getting into a little bit of trouble. NAS was coming online, the North American Spine uh, Society. Uh, there were people who, who did lots and lots of cases, but they didn't all do 14-year-old right dorsal curves. And they were concerned that the Scoliosis Research Society, maybe it should be something. And so we set up, and it was one of the first uh, that, the society had of a strategic planning. I'd gone to this course at Harvard in clinical uh, directorship uh, management. And so what we did is we set this uh, program up in, in the strategic planning in Tampa, went down to Tampa and did it. And we came out of that meeting. We decided that, well, if you had a spine tumor and it either affected the alignment and alignment and structure was important, that was a curvature, and that was scoliosis. It may have been generated by something else. And anyway, we were able to convince the adult uh, surgeons, adult-oriented, who did some uh, pediatrics. You know, in a big spine practice, unless you're associated with children's hospitals, it's not always easy. Anyway, we were able to get that forward, and then that they were comfortable and happy with that, and they could get their publications into the journals. Uh, as scoliosis because it was deformity, which was secondary to either tumor or tumor removal, uh, disc problems and so forth and so on. And so they were comfortable and happy with that. Uh, and having been selected uh, as a as a president-elect, I was able to call the person who was ahead of me. And we talked literally every Sunday night on what was going on with the society, what was the plan. I had an executive director who was just amazing. She is amazing. Uh, and uh, it just locked up. We, we were able to get some things done. And we, I think we saved the society uh, in terms of it being the Scoliosis Research Society. Uh, I was delighted to have been president and was delighted as could be until uh, the uh, 10th of September of, uh, it was... <laughs> Well, I can only say this. As the president of an international society, you have to uh, visit these uh, collaborative societies. So I was at Eurospine uh, and was in Sweden. I had been uh, in uh, Paris and I'd been in Gutenberg. And um, I was taking off from de Gaulle uh, at 10.45 on 9.11. And the word came down that there was uh, something going on that there were some buildings that had crumbled in New York City. And uh, it, it ended up that uh, this was my meeting. I had been the president-elect and my meeting was to be in Cleveland, which was going to be, I think, like the 20th or something like that. Well, in midair, we were over Greenland, over Greenland, and the uh, the pilot came on and said, uh, "There have been some issues. Uh, we're going to have to set down uh, uh, martial arts martial uh, segments have been declared in the United States, and we will no plane can take off and leave 
leave from any of the airports in the United States. We're going to be landing in uh, Newfoundland. And I said, oh, my God. Well, I think I need a drink. And, and the pilot said, <laughs> unfortunately, we're not serving drinks to anyone because we don't really know what it's going to be. And if you're going to drink that much, you need to have uh, water and so forth. So anyway, we sat down and I said, oh, my God, this was 9-11. Uh, this is the song of Bin Laden. Uh, and uh, I'm in I, my meeting is week after next. And so uh, what are we going to do? Well, we were in Cleveland. Cleveland wasn't the greatest meeting place there was <laughs> to begin with. And uh, we had been fortunate. Uh, the society had come together when we had brought everybody in. And it was set up to be one of the, the better meetings in terms of uh, adjusting to finances and so forth. But anyway, uh, so I got on the phone immediately and I called, well, I found out uh, as, as we were coming into uh, St. John's Newfoundland, uh, we went in and they put us into the, uh, the hockey, ice hockey stadium. And we saw on the teleprompters all the planes being blown apart and all that sort of thing. And uh, it, was, it was horrible. But because it was uh, exhibition uh, hockey season, there were no hotels available. So there were no, no hotels. And there were on a uh, 12 tarmac uh, airport, there were like 34 planes. And so uh, St. John's Presbyterian Church took us in. And there may have been 40 of us. And we, uh, we slept on the church floor. So it was, uh, that was an unbelievable experience. But people reached out uh, to travelers, and we were travelers. But needless to say, I called all of the uh, members of my committees and so forth, and I said, look, you got to give me some help here. What, what are we going to do? Our meeting is week after next, and it's 9-11. We knew at that time that there were societies such as the Japanese, and I don't recall the Chinese, but we had Japanese and some of the Europeans, where nobody was letting people fly to the United States for fear because nobody knew what was happening. And so, but, but to the, to the man uh, and to the woman, I think we had one woman on it. The thing was, we got your back, Al, whatever you want to do, we're fine with it. <laughs> Rather than say, we should do this or do that. And so <laughs> we decided to do it, to go ahead with it. We went to Cleveland. It was unbelievable. Some of the societies allowed for all of their registration fees because their members couldn't go because of their countries. Uh, to be uh, placed into the SRS treasures, that they would pay not only their registration, their fees and everything. And we got that. But uh, the reception, the the guys who sort of stepped up, I mean, I was being, it, it, it was a deal to be the first African-American president, but the society, it was an unbelievable organization. And I can say that to the day that, uh, they treated the situation. They treated me very, 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 very well. And as I said, it was during that time at our strategic meeting, we, that was the first time officers were selected that were outside of the continental United States. We integrated nationally the society. Most of the societies were, you could be in it, but then you could be associate or corresponding or whatever you would. But we said, we, we let, if you were qualified, uh, through the Scoliosis Research Society criteria, then you could be a full pledge, which would also allow you to become an officer. And none of the societies had that. And so we were sort of the first. 
And there was on, on my shift. And I, I felt very good about that. The society and the members felt good. So it was, it was just really, really good. And I, I enjoyed every minute of it. Dr. Crawford, this is, it, this has been absolutely amazing. Just hearing your story and just hearing your advice. You've done a lot of things in your career uh, so far. And I think something that I always love to hear, uh, uh, to kind of, you know, sit at the feet of those that have gone ahead of me is, would you have done anything different? Um, do you feel like you potentially made any mistakes, something that you would at least maybe try to uh, advise that younger surgeons like me, Alvin and Terry should probably not do uh, as we continue to pursue our different academic careers and spine deformity? Well, I can tell you this, you, you like to think that you learn a bit from your experiences as you get older. But, you know, you guys don't really know me as people may have known me X number of years ago. I may have been one of the most aggressive SOBs in life. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's amazing because people will come now and see the Spine Center and it will be all the way from, has he mellowed out to the, has he lost it? <laughs> but, but I think the thing about it that was good for me is that I think each person has always known my goal has been to be the best there ever was. And I want to take you with me, but you got to come with me and to value people. And that's what, as I started off saying, if you work with and for me, you may have taken a lot more than you wanted, but by God, you got credit for what you did. Your name was at the front of the paper your work was uh, valued and uh, the response. I think that, you know, I I told you I took this course uh, in in, uh, clinical uh, division directors at Harvard, and it taught me something, and that was long in my career, and that was uh, getting to yes was one thing, and then uh, how to treat your fellow human beings. And I think that... um, I hope that they would have been as productive as I, if I had mellowed a little earlier. I don't know. I think I think most of the scars are healed by now if they're still there. But I have been an extremely aggressive person. And uh, I, I sort of, well, I guess I always like myself. I like myself a, a bit better. My wife loves me a bit better. I think that it's good. So, you know, but where do you learn that? And and so I don't know how to reproduce that in another human being. I mean, I was rigid racism. So I had racism against me. I had uh, my attitude and philosophy with other people. It, it was, it, uh, things came together and I'm uh, eternally grateful. I'm uh, religious, a Christian, I believe in uh, the effect of, uh, of God and whoever your savior is. Uh, but I think my ability to, quote, unquote, just get along uh, got better. And um, I wanted the best out of you, but you didn't have to be better than I was. And that was was what I wanted in, in coming up. And some people may have suffered from that. Some people may have bettered from that. But I can say when you say, what would you do different? I would have the thing if, you know. I've got the answer to that. I didn't have the answer to that. If I had taken that course, perhaps at the end of my fellowships, it may have been a little bit different, but I don't know. I wouldn't, I may not have been as aggressive as I've been. It may not have worked out. But uh, so to answer your question, I can tell you what never changed and what is still there today. And that is treating humans 
the way you would like to be treated. Uh, when we're doing a case, we're aggressive with it. We're trying to get the best that is for that person. But to let people who help you know that they were a tremendous help and you will always be, uh, what should I say? You should be grateful for whatever they've done. And you know that getting to where you are had a lot to do with them helping you. And you would be willing to help them in any situation that would come about. And uh, I do believe in that. And, and mentoring, mentoring younger humans or humans in another position. You can be young or old, but uh, trying to give the advice to them that, uh, that I have been able to recover and to, um, to use at this time. And all my fellows know that. And then I think anyone that I interact with that, uh, whatever you do, you'll get your due credit for it. I, I still can work you pretty hard, but uh, the the rewards are there. Awesome. Well, Dr. Crawford, uh, I know in honor of Black History Month, the SRS is lucky to have a member like you, to have had a president like you. And uh, we really appreciate the time you spent sharing your life story uh, and, of course, mentoring us as we try to follow in your footsteps. Yes, thank you. It's been my pleasure. So uh, one thing, I actually did residency at Howard, and I was able to spend a lot of time with uh, Dr. Epps. Uh, He, you know, came by, you know, for our research days and then, you know, towards the end of the year for residency graduation, et cetera. So he's definitely an amazing man. Charles Epps is a gentleman. He is the gentleman of all gentlemen. Uh, You Hopefully he was around you enough to let some of it rub off. He is an amazing man. Uh, and we, especially those of us of color, and I take lots of other people, uh, owe a lot to him in terms of his guidance, in terms of his just being Charlie. Charlie is Charlie, and he was always Charlie. Uh, he became the president of the AOA as the first one, and he has done just a lot of wonderful things. And he has educated lots of orthopedists who look like us, and uh, they could not have had a better chief. Yep, thank you. You're welcome. The Scoliosis Research Society is a nonprofit professional organization made up of physicians and allied health personnel. Their primary focus is on providing continuing medical education for healthcare professionals and on funding and supporting research in spinal deformities. Please visit srs.org for further information.